Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger, and our first story today, a lawmaker's advanced bill allowing cities cap rents. Dateline is Des Moines. Panel of Iowa House lawmakers gave lukewarm approval Monday to legislation that would allow cities and uh, counties to cap rent cost. Iowa law prohibits a county or city from adopting or enforcing a rent control or rent stabilization ordinance. House File 2221 would remove the prohibition, giving cities and counties the option to adopt ordinances that would put a cap on residential rent increases. Representatives with the Home Builders Association of Iowa, Greater Iowa Apartment Association, the Iowa Association of Realtors, and Iowa Manufactured Housing Association were adamantly opposed to the bill. Lobbyists for the group said a rent control ordinance, also known as rent stabilization, prevents them from adjusting prices amid changing circumstances and market conditions and substantially diminishes the value of their properties. They said such measures also fail to take into account inflation, increased property taxes, and higher insurance that are driving housing prices higher. Opponents to the bill argued local rent control measures actually decrease affordability, artificially suppressing housing costs in one community while pushing rents higher in surrounding jurisdictions as landlords try to break even and lead to the decay of buildings as owners have less to spend on maintenance and improvements. They pointed to St. Paul, Minnesota, where voters in 2021 passed a rent control measure with a 53% majority. The ordinance limits residential rent increases to no more than 3% in a 12-month period with exceptions. Landlords can request an exception to get a reasonable return on their investments. Landlords must fill out a self-certification form to increase rent up to 8%, and they can increase rent up to 15% with city approval. Opponents argue the ordinance discouraged apartment construction and caused lenders to back out of financing deals, noting permits for multifamily buildings, dropped 80%. Supporters said the bill provides local communities the option to enact rent stabilization ordinances to address a shortage of affordable rental housing impacting Iowans young and old, including seniors. A three-member subcommittee voted 2-0 to zero to recommend passage and advance the bill to the full House Local Government Committee for consideration. Representative Jane Bloomingdale, Republican of Northwood, declined to sign the bill, echoing concerns raised by trade and industry groups. Representative Tom Detterman, a Republican of Comanche, a co-sponsor with Representative Heather Matson, a Democrat of Ankeny, waffled on whether to send the bill to the full committee with or without a recommendation. Detterman said the bill gives local governments an option to ensure housing is affordable and is conversation that needs to take place. A sentencing has been set for a Clear Lake man for sex and drug crimes. A North Iowa man who pleaded guilty to sexual abuse and distributing meth to a minor and assault causing bodily injury will face sentencing later this month. According to uh, court records, 34-year-old Christian David Vorland of Clear Lake entered a guilty plea last month to three felony counts of third-degree sexual abuse, child victim, two felony counts of distributing drugs near a school, and he entered an Alford plea to a misdemeanor count of assault causing bodily injury. 
one count of felony pimping and four counts of felony distributing distributing a controlled substance to a minor were not listed in court documents as having been dropped, but the charges were not among the pleas entered by Vorland. He was arrested on the charges on July 18 of 2023. Vor, Vorland admitted in his pleas to distributing methamphetamine at a residence located within 1,000 feet of school property between July of 2022 and June of 2023. He also sexually abused a child under the age of 14 during that time. He admitted in his plea to assaulting the child, causing bodily injury as well. Sentencing is scheduled for 10 a.m. Monday, February 26th at Cerro Gordo County Courthouse. And briefly, Representative Steckman to hold a public forum in Mason City. State Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat Mason City, will host a public forum on Saturday, February the 17th. According to a press release, the event will be held from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at the Mason City Public Library. Everyone is encouraged to attend. And Clear Lake Police Department has announced a promotion. Clear Lake Police Chief Mike Colby announced in a press release that Lieutenant Brandon Hines will be promoted to police captain effective Monday, February 19, 2024. He will be sworn in that same day at the regularly scheduled Clear Lake City Council meeting, which will be held at, uh, which will be held at 15 North 6th Street. Hines was, uh, has worked for the Clear Lake Police Department since April of 2015. He was promoted to lieutenant in September of 2020 and assigned to the afternoon shift as the watch commander. Prior to working for the Clear Lake Police Department, Hines was a jailer for the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office, holding the rank of sergeant. From a pool of 13, three of which were internal candidates, Hines excelled in the selection process according to the release. Hines will assume the duties as division commander for the Uniform Patrol and Criminal Investigation Divisions. North Iowa Events Center gets grant is a story written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. The Enhanced Iowa Board awarded $370,000 in community attraction and tourism grants to a museum project in Grinnell and horse stable and warm-up arena in Mason City, it announced in a press release. The projects receiving CAT grants are the Grinnell Historical Museum Society, the North uh, and the North Iowa Events Center, horse stable and warm-up area in Mason City. The North Iowa Events Center project includes the construction of a new 16,000-square-foot stable and warm-up arena with storage space. NIEC was awarded $170,000 with a total project cost of $1,090,960. The Grinnell project includes the conversion of a former retail space into a handicap-accessible museum with temporary exhibits and permanent displays of Grinnell's history a collections care space, restrooms, and a catering kitchen. Grinnell Historical Museum Society received $200,000 toward its $1,507,472 project cost. The Enhanced Iowa program provides financial incentives to communities for the construction of recreational, cultural, educational, or entertainment facilities that enhance the quality of life in Iowa. To date, 138 CAT grants have been awarded by the board, totaling $46,805,023. The next Enhanced Iowa Board meeting is scheduled for March 7 of 2024.
Mason City High School Follies Returns, again written by Robin McClelland of the Globe Gazette. Mason City High School President presents the 76th Annual Follies titled All Together Now, beginning Thursday. Students and the vocal choir will perform a variety of songs, skits, and entertainment. Performances are at 7.30 p.m. tonight, uh, 7.30 p.m. Friday, February 9th, and at 1 p.m. Sunday, February 11, at the NIACC Auditorium. Tickets are available at both Hy-Vee locations at the customer service desk, at the Mason City High School office, or at the door. Ticket prices are $10 for adults, $8 for children 12 and under, and senior citizens 60+. plus. There is also a special rate for students for $8 for the Thursday performance. A large article, North Iowa Embraces Micronesian Immigrants, and there's a big picture here. It's on the front page of all these immigrants. Uh, it says that it's a group of Micronesians who have immigrated to North Iowa, posed together for a NIACC campus tour. And it says Micronesians value education as a way to gain good jobs. All these folks have smiles on their faces. And the headline is, in past decade, hundreds have relocated to Mason City. Again, written by Robin McClellan of the Globe Gazette. North Iowans may see the region with fresh eyes as they welcome new residents to the area. Over the last decade, a number of Micronesian immigrants have made their homes in Iowa. Asdaka Sukan is an unofficial spokesman for the group of more than 350 islanders, and he's been astounded by the welcome Micronesians have received. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's E-S-D-A-K-A. Last name is S-O-U-K-O-N. Well, there are three things Micronesians are looking for, three things that they want in their lives, and one is education, another health care, and last is living or housing. All of this is here in Iowa, he said. Twenty-five immigrants met at North Iowa Area Community College on January 28 for a campus tour. Ann Boyer, Director of Admissions, and Iwalani Beltran, Student Ambassador, guided the group through campus and explained financial aid and tutoring services offered. Sukon, S-O-U-K-O-N, and his wife, Marcia, are parents to three children. Marcia uh, works as a translator for Language Line Solutions, while Asdaka Sukon works at Curie's. Some of us speak English very well, Marcia said. Others understand but are not confident when speaking. I do translation for things like doctor visits and DOT appointments, Sometimes it's hard to understand certain types of conversation with unfamiliar words when English is your second language, she said. Well, Micronesia is a geographical area encompassing Palo, P-A-L-A-U. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. The Federated States of Micronesia, which is the name of the sovereign nation itself, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, as well as other island nations. The Micronesia region is located northeast of Australia, and is an eight-hour flight southwest from Hawaii. The greater region is known as Oceania. There are more than 2,700 islands in the region, 607 of which make up the FSM. The Republic of the Marshall Islands holds just five islands, but includes 29 coral atolls. atolls. Palau has 340 islands, changing pages here, 340 islands of its own. In total, the three countries have just 521 square miles of land between them in a 2,700-mile longitudinal spread of ocean. Well, Palau, FSM, and RMI are all sovereign nations. 
For millennia, life on these scattered, spread-out islands was one of peaceful subsistence. Residents fished, farmed, and lived traditionally until the arrival of the Spaniards in the 1600s. The island's indigenous species are mainly fish, reptiles, and some fowl. Spanish colonizers introduced other animals, such as pigs and dogs. Uh, Following the Spanish-American War, Spain sold the island chains to Germany. By the First World War, Japan took control of the islands held by Germany, an occupation that lasted until the end of World War II. After World War II, the United States began administering the region, forming the trust territory of the Pacific Islands. During U.S. administration, the Micronesian population expanded rapidly due to increased medical care and imported foodstuffs. However, there were some cultural growing pains. The U.S. government brought infrastructure improvements that changed the culture from one of idyllic subsistence to a wage-driven economy. With more residents engaged in wage work, there was an increased need for imports for purchase as time for fishing and farming was greatly reduced. It also made Micronesians deeply aware of the value of education and training in order to secure good training positions. And moving ahead just a little ways here, it's between 1946 and 1948, the U.S. tested 67 atomic bombs in the Marshall Island atolls. By 1979, the states of Chunk, C-H-U-N-K, Pompeii, Yap, and Cosrae, K-O-S-R-A-E, ratified a constitution to become self-governing. By 1986, the U.S. and FSM approved the Compact of Free Association, allowing residents of the FSM, RMI, and Paolo to move freely throughout the U.S. to live, learn, and work. While Micronesians aren't citizens, they can access federal programs such as student loans, meaning the NIACC visit was an eye-opening experience for the group that visited campus. Keeley Branstad discussed the TRIO student support services offered to all eligible students. The nice thing about being immigrant students is that you are basically eligible for all the help we have to offer, like tutoring and other supports, excuse me, she told the group. Well, as DACA said, the choices of certificates and degrees that can be completed in a short period or part-time are ideal for hardworking Micronesians. We are very focused on our work. We work hard to be our best. People who want more education can get it while they are working, he said. That can do at that can-do attitude extends to play as well. Baseball is the most popular sport in Micronesia, and that love traveled across the ocean as migrants arrived. We love softball, said Esdaka. We have been here three years and have teams already. I know as much, I know as more people come, there will be more teams. We broke into a wide grin. I'm sorry, he broke into a wide grin as he shared stories of softball games gone by. Micronesians hold family ties close. The Sukans, along with their children, moved from Pompeii to Hawaii. Eventually, they landed in Ohio, and from there, Marsha Sukans' uncle encouraged them to move to Mason City. He called and he said, You need to be here. You need to be in Iowa, as Daka recalled. In addition to her uncle, her brother, Joey Moffat, and nephew, Decay Roberts, live in North Iowa. Decay listened intently during the NIACC presentations. As a sophomore at Clear Lake High School, he's keenly aware of the possibilities for his future. I'm in auto shop at school. I like a lot of working with my hands, he said. 
In the short time these Micronesian immigrants have lived in North Iowa, they have purchased and restored a church on South Wilson Avenue in Mason City. Every home for Christ Fellowship is a house of worship and community the friends can enjoy together. Mason City residents have embraced the Micronesians. Carrie Juarez owns and operates the Four Corners Market, especially specialty grocery store featuring Hispanic and Micronesian foods. Every culture has its own taste, and we keep Micronesian favorites stocked and ready, said Juarez. The Sukan spend many of their off-hours networking, as Dhaka and Marsha have spoken to local service groups, toured important locations, and shared the stories of Micronesia culture with anyone who holds an interest. We would like to meet with business and factory owners, too, said Estaka. Sometimes people get nervous in an interview and forget their English, but we are good workers and are looking for jobs when we arrive. Estaka and Marcia serve as youth pastors in Mason City, just as they did in Hawaii and Ohio. We're very glad to be here. God has led us to where we should be, said Estaka Sukan. Lawmakers advance bill that defines a man Woman, written by Tom Barton of the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. Dateline is Des Moines. Transgender and civil rights advocates and their allies packed a committee room and hallway for the second time in as many weeks to voice opposition to legislation they decried as unconstitutional and blatantly discriminatory. Activists stomped, shouted, and chanted profanities, and trans rights are human rights outside a committee room Tuesday in vehement vehement opposition to a proposal by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds that they say would erase transgenders Iowans from state code. House Study Bill 649 would define man and woman in state law and require transgender to transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on their driver's license. The bill was later amended by the House Education Committee to remove the driver's license requirement. Changes would still be required to be noted on a birth certificate. I can't see any other purpose than discrimination, said Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat Mason City, who voted against the bill. I am appalled that the governor would put forth such a discriminatory bill targeting 0.29% of our Iowa population, Steckman said. It is a sad day for Iowa. We're going backward, she said. The House Education Committee voted Tuesday in a 15-8 to party-line vote to advance the bill for debate and a vote by the full House. Democrats opposed the bill. House Democrats requested a public hearing on the bill to allow Iowans to voice their concerns about it before heading to a vote on the House floor. House Education Committee Chairman Schuyler Wheeler, uh, Representative, or rather Republican, Hall, said House Republicans will work to accommodate the request. Reynolds, in a statement last week, called the legislation common sense and said it protects women's spaces and rights. She compared it to a state law passed um, in 2022 that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in girls' and women's athletics. Women and men are not identical, Reynolds. Legislative liaison uh, Molly Severn told lawmakers, echoing the governor, they possess unique biological differences. That's not controversial. It's common sense. It's unfortunate that defining a woman in code has become necessary to protect spaces for women's health, safety, and privacy that are being threatened, like domestic violence shelters and rape crisis centers. 
Stackman questioned whether domestic violence shelters in the state are experiencing problems accommodating cisgender and transgender women. Opponents note, just as with school bathrooms and locker rooms, many institutions have shown it's possible to provide facilities that accommodate cisgender people whose gender identity corresponds with their sex at birth and transgender people. They say the bill's use of pro-segregation language should raise alarm. Reynolds' bill echoes language associated with the 1986 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, which declared segregation on the basis of race to be legal. The governor's bill says the term equal does not mean same or identical and that separate accommodations are not inherently unequal and mentions prisons, domestic violence, shelters, locker rooms, restrooms, and rape crisis centers as places where people may need to be separated based on their sex assigned at birth. Here we are repeating, not learning from history, said Connie Ryan, Executive Director of Interfaith Alliance of Iowa Action Fund. Separate but equal is never equal, she said. The bill comes a week after hundreds of transgender Iowans and LGBTQ and civil rights advocates and allies flocked to the Capitol to protest a bill that would have changed the way transgender Iowans are protected under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Though that legislative proposal failed to advance, Reynolds introduced the new legislation, she said, recognizes biological differences between men and women. Opponents, including the ACLU of Iowa, said the bill would have wide-ranging implications, including requiring changes to the way Iowa collects public health data and offers anti-discrimination protections. Transgender Iowans said the legislation, before it was amended, would require them to out themselves anywhere they have to present their ID. My community is terrified of the consequences this bill will have for our lives, Emma Denny, a transgender woman from Iowa City, told lawmakers. Trans, trans people already face overwhelming uh, employment and housing discrimination in Iowa under existing law, and the governor's bill will open ourselves up to more violence anytime we have to show an identification, she said. Denny drew comparisons between the bill's requirement and the pink triangles that were sewn into the shirts of gay men in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. This is untenable, and we in Iowa will not stand for it, Denny said. The bill defines a female as a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to produce ova, and a male as a person whose biological reproductive system is developed to fertilize the ova of a female. The term woman or girl refers to a female, and the term man or boy refers to a male. The section continues. The bill also would prevent transgender Iowans who have had sex reassignment surgery from simply changing their sex on their birth certificate. HSB 649 would require a person's sex at birth to be listed along with any reassessment for people seeking to change their birth certificate. Other Republican-led states include Florida, have enacted similar policies. LGBTQ and civil rights advocates and said the bill is another broad attack on transgender, transgender Iowans. Some obituaries now. Jessica Lynn Elbert died suddenly on uh, January 4 at her home in Mason City. Jessica was born February 10, 1987 in Forest City, Iowa. She was the daughter of David and Carol Ebert. She spent most of her life in Mason City. Services were held and burial has taken place 
in Winnebago, Nebraska. Joanne Seberall, S-B-E-R-A-L, of Mason City, matriarch of the Seberall clan, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, passed away Sunday, February 4th, at age of 96, at the Sheffield Care Center, surrounded by her family. And uh, arrangements are with Major Erickson Funeral Home and Crematory, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue, Mason City. And number is 641-423-0924 if you like more information. Robert Eugene Carrot, C-A-R-R-O-T-T, Clear Lake, 86 years old, entered eternity to receive his new life through Jesus and be reunited with his soulmate Kay on Saturday, February the 3rd at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center, Mason City, Iowa. And he is his Ward Van Sickle Colonial Chapel, North Clear Lake, Iowa, is uh, handling the, the services. The number there is 641-357-2193 if you would like more information. Judy Eleanor Harris, um, 79 years old of Mason City, passed away February 5 at the IOOF home in Mason City, Iowa. And um, Hogan Bremer Merle Moore Colonial Chapel, and their number is 641-423-2372. Uh, handling services. And David Burton Anderson, Swaledale, uh, is 83 years old, passed away Monday, February 5, Mercy One Medical Center, North Iowa and Mason City. Online condolences may be left for the family at MajorRicksonFuneralHome.com. Gary Wesley Ewing, a curtain call for a master of the stage. This obituary reads in in memoriam of Gary Wesley Ewing, February 1, 2024, the lights dimmed on remarkable life as Gary Ewing, the creative force behind countless theater and film productions and documentaries, took his final bow. And his services are being handled by Hogan Bremer Moore Chapel, a colonial chapel in Mason City. And here's uh, uh, Lydia Berenstein, Riceville, Lydia, 99 died Monday, February 5, at the Riceville Family Care and Therapy Center. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, February 13th, at the uh, St. Peter Lutheran Church in Elma, Iowa. Ondine condolences may be left at hindtfuneralhomes.com. Robert Mills, 81, of Northwood, passed away Sunday, February 4, Funeral services are going to be held 10 a.m. Friday, February 9th, First Lutheran Church in Northwood, Iowa. And their number, uh, uh, Connor Colonial Chapel, is 641-324-1543. And um, Randina Shookman, S-C-H-U-C-K-M-A-N. Dina, D-I-N-A, is how she's in quotes. Age 55, passed away January 30 at uh, Carol Broman Medical Center. Visitation will be held on Friday the 9th, 4 to 6 p.m., and her celebration of life will be held on Saturday the 10th at 11 a.m. at Calvary United Methodist Church, Tawanda Avenue in Normal, Illinois. Condolences and memories can be shared with the family. K-I-B-L-E-R-B-R-A-D-Y-R-U-E-S-T-M-A-N dot com. Let's see, did I miss anyone here? Just enough time for a sports story here. Standout Clear Lake tight end commits to Iowa. Clear Lake is the dateline. Thomas Meyer is used to wearing black and yellow as a Clear Lake lion. Now he will wear it at the next level. 
The junior committed to play football at the University of Iowa on Sunday after a years-long recruiting process. The decision was an easy one for Meyer. The Hawkeye coaches, including Kirk Friends, have been in the area lately to watch the football star on the basketball court. When Meyer, one of the state's highest-ranked 2025 prospects, was on campus for Iowa's junior day, January 27, he started to think Iowa City is where he wants to play college football. He says, I went on a visit to Iowa, and I got that feeling like this is the place for me, Meyer said. Thought it was uh, a great fit, and my parents agreed, and we decided to get it done. Felt like the culture and everything they preach and teach was just like Clear Lake. It just fits me. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids. No, you are not. I'm sorry. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we're going to turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger. And on the front page of this Thursday, February 8th edition, it says Morris's, Maurice's announces return to Fort Dodge. Clothing store planned for Corridor Plaza by Bill Shea. Maurice's, a uh, woman's clothing store, will return to Fort Dodge with a new site in Corridor Plaza. Fort Dodge is a community we are excited to re-enter, and we are thrilled to be a part of this vibrant redevelopment at the Corridor Plaza. Renee Shedblower, Senior Vice President of Morse's Stores, said in a written statement in, issued Wednesday. At Maurice's, we believe a great outfit can change a woman's day, she added. Above all, we aim to make a difference in the lives of women who are the heart of our hometowns. There used to be a store in the old Crosswoods Mall. It closed before the mall was shuttered and torn down in 2022. The new store will be in what used to be the Yonkers wing of the mall, now referred to by developers as the Power Center, that structure will be home to four stores. Dunham Sporting Goods, another former mall tenant, announced last month that it also is returning to Fort Dodge with a new 33,000-square-foot store that will occupy about half of the power center. The Sporting Goods store will be located at the east end of the building, closest to South 29th Street. Maurice's will be immediately to the west. The addition of Maurice's to Corridor Plaza is another step towards revitalizing our city's retail landscape, Mayor Matt Bemrich said. It's not just about shopping. It's about creating a destination that our community can be proud of. And we are confident the Maurice's will be a great fit for our city and a draw for shoppers. B.J. Stokesbury, a spokesman for Crossroads Plaza Development, LLC, of Ankeny, which owns the site, said the development group is thrilled to add Maurice's to our growing family of first-class tenants at Corridor Plaza. Their commitment to quality and size-inclusive women's apparel aligns perfectly with our vision of offering diverse and premium shopping experiences to the residents of Fort Dodge, he said. An opening date for the new store was not announced, but Stokesbury said it is anticipated it will be in the fall. The goal for everyone across the Power Center will be to open this fall, he said. Maurice's Stores is headquartered in Duluth, Minnesota. company promotes itself as having feel-good fashion at really good prices. 
Headline is Duncombe Program Develops Young Leaders. Students Take Important Roles in Their School. This is written by John McBride. And it says, Leader in Me is an educational framework that has been implemented by the Fort Dodge Community School District for several years. The first paradigm of the program is everyone can be a leader. The students and staff at Duncombe Elementary School have embraced that concept. Last year, Principal Ryan Flaherty and his staff began a leadership program with a part of the student body and staff. This year, the entire building has engaged the leadership program. Each quarter, students apply for leadership positions and staff picks who gets each position. It's become quite the event, with both students and staff excited to see which positions students are given. The kids are just so excited to take on their new roles each quarter, said Flaherty. It's controlled chaos the day we announce their new positions. I am very proud of many things at Duncombe Elementary. Leadership roles is definitely at the top of that list, he said. According to Kelly Kelly Moline, the leadership action team facilitator at Duncombe, there are a plethora of roles students can take. Most jobs are open to any grade level, though first grade students are sometimes limited in what positions they are given. Jobs range from birthday club leaders to event greeters and even a nurse's aide. There are more than 25 different positions available. Moline, M-O-L-I-N-E is how that is spelled, said all students other than first graders use a Google form to apply for their top three choices. Then the staff picks which role students will hold for the quarter. Teachers and staff are then in charge of each of the different leadership groups. Moline said nearly all the students switch jobs, switch jobs each quarter, but if staff feels a particular position is beneficial for a student, that student can continue in a role for another quarter. Sometimes they are put in roles that are really good for them and they are really benefiting from that position. If that's the case, we will leave them in that same position, she said. Most of the positions are out of the public eye, like library assistant or a new student buddy, but some are very visible to the public, such as school decorator, event greeter, or special events planner. Flaherty leads the event setup squad and boasted, we can set up 200 chairs in no time. Moline said another benefit is students in different places working with each other. The older kids really mentor the younger ones, she said. The older kids really embrace that responsibility to help the younger ones. Third grade uh, paraeducator Teresa Brown is in charge of the building and groundskeepers. She said students help with cleaning and sanitizing the school and embrace that role. They recognize the importance of our janitorial staff who make sure Duncombe Elementary is kept clean and whose mission is to greet germs at the front door, she said. These students meet to get their sanitary wipes and head out, often skipping, eager to find the areas where they are assigned to wipe things down. We hear giggles on Tuesday afternoons when the weather is good and we get to walk around the school and playground to make sure every bit of litter is picked up. Flaherty said last year there really wasn't a blueprint for the program and there were some bumps along the way. This year, he said all staff and students are on board and are embracing it. It was a difficult adjustment for some staff, he said. A lot of us just didn't know what to do. Now we have teachers that don't want to give it up. Moline also said another positive to uh, come out of the program is the decline in discipline issues at the school. 
We were looking at the data, and we've seen a significant drop from last year, she said. Students can also lose positions for dis dis disciplinary reasons. It is heartbreaking for most of them to lose their job, but they all work to get back, get them back if that happens. Moline is also in charge of the Lighthouse team, which serves as a kind of student government for Duncombe. Students selected for the students selected for the Lighthouse team must have all homework assignments complete and possess a strong work ethic, she said. They must also model the seven habits of leader in me, she said. Lighthouse team members have shared their opinions and presented at staff meetings along other duties, among other duties. In their, leader, in their leadership roles, students learn that they have a voice and a purpose, said Moline. Leadership roles develop students' skills by getting them out of their comfort zone. Students were assigned their new positions at the start of the third quarter in January. They'll hold those positions until the quarter ends in late March. Then new positions will be assigned for the remainder of the year. State Senator launches re-election bid, again written by Bill Shea. State Senator Tim Crayenbrink, Republican Fort Dodge, announced Wednesday that he is running for re-election. And if voters think that Crayenbrink was just re-elected, they would be correct. Due to a quirk resulting from legislative redistricting after the 2020 census, he is running again even though he was re-elected in 2022. The redistricting moved Crayenbrink from an odd-numbered Senate district to an even-numbered one, and even-numbered seats are always on the ballot during presidential election years. Crayenbrink was first selected, elected in 2014. He was re-elected in 2018 and 2022. He has served two full four-year terms and is now completing the unusual two-year term prompted by the redistricting. He represents Senate District 4, which includes Calhoun, Pocahontas, Sac, and Webster counties. In launching his re-election bid, Crayenbrink uh, touted the accomplishments of Republicans in the legislature. The last several years have included major accomplishments for Northwest Iowa, he said. And this includes historic income tax relief, historic property tax relief, and all while responsibly uh, managing tax relief all while responsibly managing the budget and investing in our priorities. We put more money into public schools than ever. We've given parents more choice and control over their child's education and put Iowa in a strong economic position, he added. I know we aren't finished yet, and there is more we can do to improve our state and move it into the right direction. That is why I'm proud to announce I am running for another term in the Iowa Senate. Crayenbrink is the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, which has a leading role in determining how the state government spends money. The senator owns Crayenbrink Financial Services. He has a bachelor's degree from Northern State College in Aberdeen, South Dakota. He and his wife, Sally, have three children and six grandchildren. He is the only candidate in the race, Senate District 4, so far. Another article written by Bill Shea. This one is Two Unarmed by Barn Blast, the heading. Dayton is the dateline. Two people escaped injury when a small explosion occurred in a southern Webster County barn Wednesday afternoon. They were very lucky, said D Dylan uh, Hagen, the Webster County Emergency Management Coordinator. The blast was reported at about 3 p.m. at 2424 350th Street. Dayton Fire Chief Luke Hainzinger 
said heat from, the, uh, from a welder ignited some methane gas in the barn, causing the explosion. He said the heat from the blast melted some plastic in the building, and he said there was no fire and the building remained standing. There was no livestock in the building, but Hagen said that there were plans to move some pigs into it today. He said that move will have to be delayed. Property is owned by Stephen and Cindy Grettenberg of Fort Dodge, according to online records of the Webster County Assessor's Office. The Dayton, Harcourt, and Lehigh Fire Departments, Dayton Rescue Squad, Southwest Webster Emergency Medical Service, Webster County Sheriff's Office, and Webster County Emergency Management uh, responded. Here's kind of a national story. Uh, Senate Republicans blocked by bipartisan border package scramble to find support for Ukraine aid is the headline. Dateline is Washington, D.C., Wartime aid for Ukraine was left hanging in the Senate Wednesday after Republicans blocked a bipartisan border package that had been tied to the funding, then struggled to coalesce around a plan to salvage the aid for Kyiv. After GOP senators scuttled months of negotiations with Democrats on legislation intended to cut back record numbers of illegal border crossings, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer tried to push ahead to a crucial test vote on a $95 billion package for Ukraine, Israel, and other U.S. allies, a modified package with the border portion stripped out. But a deeply divided Republican conference was scrambling to find support for the wartime funding, even though it has been a top priority for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. It was a last sign of the longtime Republican leader slipping control over his conference and underscored how the traditional GOP GOP is given away to Donald Trump's America first nationalism at stake is the future of Ukraine's defense against Russia. The Senate floor settled into an hours long stall Wednesday night as Republicans huddled to see if they could gain the votes necessary to push it through the chamber. Schumer then closed the floor saying he would give our Republican colleagues the night to figure themselves out ahead of a crucial test vote Monday or rather Thursday. Republicans plan to meet in the morning to plot a path forward. Some GOP senators have grown skeptical of sending money to Ukraine in its war with Russia. But Schumer warned earlier Wednesday that history will cast a permanent and shameful shadow on those who attempt to block it. Will the Senate stand up to brutish thugs like Vladimir Putin and reassure our friends abroad that America will never abandon them in the hour of need? Schumer asked as he opened the Senate. The roughly $60 billion in Ukraine aid has been stalled in Congress for months because of growing opposition from hardline conservatives in the House and Senate who criticize it as wasteful and demand an exit strategy for the war. We still need to secure America's borders before sending another dime overseas, Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah wrote in a post on X. The impasse means that the U.S. has halted arms shipments to Kyiv at a crucial point in the nearly two-year-old conflict, leaving Ukrainian soldiers without ample ammunition and missiles as Russian President Putin has mounted relentless attacks. Ukraine's cause still enjoys support from many Senate Republicans, including McConnell, but the question vexing lawmakers has always been how to craft a package that could, he- could clear the Republican-controlled House. And Trump's presidential bid hangs in the balance in a Supreme Court case that's broken new legal ground. Dateline is Washington. The fate of former President Donald Trump's attempt to return to the White House is in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. On Thursday, that is today, 
the justices will hear arguments in Trump's appeal of a Colorado Supreme Court ruling that he is not eligible to run again for president because he violated a provision in the 14th Amendment preventing those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. Many legal observers expect the nation's highest court will reserve, reverse the Colorado ruling rather than remove the leading contender for the Republican presidential nomination from the ballot. But it's always tricky to try to predict a Supreme Court ruling, and the case against Trump has already broken new legal ground. We have a couple obituaries today. Lois Bass, 71, of Fort Dodge, passed away Tuesday the 6th. After a battle with cancer, no services are planned. The Gunnerson Funeral Home and Cremation Services are in charge of arrangements. And Lois is survived by several nieces and nephews. She is preceded in death by her parents, her husband Richard, her siblings Ronnie, Donnie, Audrey, Lyle, Doris, and Jimmy. Joyce Van Horn, West Bend. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. Monday the 12th at Peace Lutheran Church in West Bend. Visitation will be one hour prior to the service. And lentzfuneralhome.com if you want more information. And... Uh, Savannah, S-V-A-N-A, Savannah O. Lamb, age 96, be a funeral 2 p.m. today. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church visitation one hour prior at the church. And Jacqueline Jackie Kim, K-E-H-M, age 69, celebration of life will be Friday at 11 a.m. Lutheran Church of Hope in West Des Moines, visitation 10 a.m. until the time of this at the church. Moving into sports section now, the Tritons roll. Iowa Central snaps out of skid, written by Dana Becker. Wednesday night uh, presented just what the Iowa Central women presented just what the Iowa Central women. Reeling following three consecutive losses, the Tritons had no trouble getting back on track with a commanding 75 to 44 victory over Ellsworth inside Hodges Fieldhouse. Emily Tice led four players. Four players in double figures, scoring 16 as Laney Pilcher added 15, Caitlin Tendall had 13, and Alice Alicia Hattleshead had, I'm sorry, added 12. Jordan Mayland chipped in eight points with, at Fort Dodge Senior High grad Laney Mail added six. Iowa Central 16-6 overall, 8-6 in ICCAC, raced out to a 23-8 lead building on its advantage from there with a 15-8 run in the second quarter. They closed the contest strong, outscoring the Panthers 9-15, to 4-11 over the final 10 minutes, 20-10. This was a quality win for us, ICCC head coach Seba Dickerson said. We have three keys to every game, and after a tough stretch of games, our team responded well by winning all three keys Wednesday night. While we didn't have the best shooting night from outside, we shot 40% from the floor and 88% from the line. We reminded our team that every win in this conference is key to postseason seeding and success. Tindall had five steals and pitcher Pilcher four as the Tritons forced 33 turnovers and converted those into 34 points. Tendall also had a team-high seven rebounds while dishing out five assists. Tice also had seven rebounds and five steals with two steals. For Ellsworth, Favor Nemecha Anele 
A-N-Y-A-E-L-E, had 15 points, and Marin Lend Agastorter added 11. With the win, Iowa Central completed a season sweep of the Panthers, adding to its 76-59 win at Iowa Falls in December. The Tritons, who host Northeast on Saturday for Jam the Gym, are now 8-3 and three at home on, on the year. This one also written by Diana Becker, or Dana Becker, I'm sorry. Tritons fall short, the headline on this story, Iowa Central can't stop Ellsworth. For the first 20 minutes here Wednesday night, the Iowa Central men put together a strong all-around effort. Over the final half, though, it was the number nine Ellsworth who found its rhythm. The Panthers erased a four-point halftime deficit to post a 92-75 win inside Hodges Fieldhouse. Randy Latham scored 20 points with Miles Fant and Devon Gatz, Gaston, each adding 16 for the Tritons. We came out early. We came out really poised and filled with energy, ICC head coach Chad Helley said. After the break, we, we couldn't find that rhythm again. No matter what we tried, we couldn't slow them down and we couldn't get going again. Ellsworth came out of halftime firing on all cylinders, using a 19-3 run to gain control of the game. Arlandus Keys had 22. Chimbobi uh, Ikiguruka, 21. And Jordan Glenn Hawkins, 19 for the Panthers. Chase Lowe added 11 of the beach of the bench, with Gaston recording seven rebounds and Latham five with four assists. We showed what we are capable of doing for 20 minutes against a top 10 team, Helly said. Hopefully that gives them the confidence they need to build on us on as we hit the stretch run of the season. These two teams also battled in December with Ellsworth claiming a 96-82 victory in Iowa Falls. Up next for the Tritons will be Northeast on Saturday for Jam the Gym inside Hodgins Fieldhouse. Gale, Gurdon, uh, Gale Girls open with Wildcats, and this dateline is Glidden. The postseason journey begins here Thursday night for the St. Edmund Girls. The Gales take on Glidden-Ralston in the Class 1A Region 2 contest beginning at 7 p.m. Awaiting the winner will be second-ranked Newell Fonda on Tuesday. The Mustangs received a bye to start the tournament. St. Edmund, 4-17 and overall ending the regular season with back-to-back losses to Hampton, Dumont, Cal, suffered five straight defeats since a 46-36 victory over Eagle Grove. Leading the way for the Gales is freshman Coley Palmer, as the freshman is averaging just under nine points per game. Junior Jose, Josie Harvey is second on the team in scoring with sophomore Anna Lurson third. Lurson, a key piece of the state cross-country team in the fall, leads the team at 8.5 rebounds a night, including 4.5 on the offensive end. She finished the season ranked in the North uh, Central Conference. Palmer is averaging 5 rebounds and 2 assists per game, while Harvey added 4 rebounds. For the Wildcats, 5-16, and 16, they picked up a 56-46 triumph versus Peyton Chardin in their regular season finale earlier this week. Senior Tiala Jansen is the leading scorer at 14 points a night, followed by sophomore Cassidy Wink and freshman Allison Snyder. Wink and Snyder are the top competitors, with Wink also averaging 3.4 assists a night. 
Here's a couple of late area sports stories. Eagle Grove boys uh, storm back. It's called a huge rally by the Eagle Grove boys. Netted them a 60-58 to win over Garner Hayfield Ventura on Tuesday. Treon Franklin scored 25 of his 27 points in the second half and made what proved to be the game-winning three-point basket with five seconds left in regulation. The Eagles trailed by as many as 17 points in the third quarter before mounting their comeback. Drake Canavan added 16 in Jackson. Morris contributed 8 for the Eagle Grove 10-10 overall in its regular season finale. Jake Bieske also hit a triple before the Tranklin tray to pull the Eagles closer. And number 2, NF now, Newell Fonda now 19-1. The second ranked class 1A, Newell Fonda girls improved to 19-1 with a busy recent stretch of victories. Mustangs handled Storm Lake 62 to 47, West Bend Mallard 72 to 20, Alta Aurelia 84-44 and Cherokee 72 to 36. Kinsey Hinders or Hinders 17 points and Kiara Jungers 16 paced uh, NF against the tor- Tornadoes with McKenna Seavers adding 12 all on three-point baskets. Isabel Bartek led the way versus WBM with 18 points, Jungers 16, Hinders 15, Seavers 10, and reached double figures, also reached double figures. Hinders 21 and Jungers 20 powered the offensive against AA with Jungers 21, Avavei 12, and Hinders 11 hitting double digits versus Cherokee. And before we close it out today, here's a couple things uh, that happened this date in history. And we're going to pick it up with the 1910. The Boy Scouts of America was incorporated. 1922 on this date in history, President Warren G. Harding had a radio installed in the White House. That was 1922. And in 1924, the first execution by gas in the United States took place at the Nevada State Prison in Carson City as G. John, a Chinese immigrant convicted of murder, was put to death. 1952, Queen Elizabeth the second proclaimed her ascension to the British throne following the death of her father, King George the sixth. In nineteen sixty, work began on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, located on Hollywood Boulevard and Vine Street in LA. Nineteen sixty-five, this date, Eastern Airlines Flight six sixty-three, a DC seven, crashed shortly after takeoff from New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport. All eighty-four people on board were killed. 1968, three black students were killed in a confrontation between demonstrators and highway patrolmen, South Carolina State University in Orangeburg, in the wake of protest over a whites-only bowling alley. 1973, Senate leaders named seven members of a select committee to investigate the Watergate scandal, including its chairman, Democrat Sam G. J. Irvin of North Carolina. And that just about wraps it up for today, which is... It is Thursday, February the 8th. It brings us to the end of the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Doug Kretzinger. I want to thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and I wish you a good day. <laughs>